Hello and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. I am super excited to be here with Dr. Lynette Mira. We are going to be talking about turning exclusion into inclusion. And I know a lot of you out there have felt that pain of being excluded. And when it happens over and over and over again, it really leaves some marks on your spirit, on your psyche, and your ability to connect with other people and be the best you, be the wolf, be who you were born to be. And so what I love so much about what Dr. Lynette is doing is what she does for work is really bringing in that inclusion piece that a lot more companies than ever before are really trying to do. So Lynette, would you tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now in the world? Yes, happy to do so. Hello, everybody out at Be The Wolf listeners and viewers, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's really kind, and I've received a warm welcome, so thank you. Uh, so to get started, I think the easiest way to tell people about what I do is to think of, you know, we all have this ideal of an inclusive, equitable, diverse workplace or nonprofit organization where everybody's feeling valued, where people feel heard, where leadership is empowered to take on challenges. That's the ideal. The reality is much harder. And we are the folks that help you get there, help you make those changes, whether it's getting a new framework for understanding these concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion, social justice, or if it's active practice, like, you know what, I don't know how to speak up. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to recruit allies. I don't know how to check in with myself to make sure that I'm not turning what could be a productive conversation into an intense argument. And so we have all sorts of kinds of programs. And really what we specialize in is creating custom programs for folks. So no matter where you're at, if you're just at the beginning stages or you're like, you know what, we're ready to do like a comprehensive climate survey, leadership program, policy development, like we've got your back. And we're connected with a whole host of wonderful partners that we have that specialize in different specific topics too. 
We're a little different than other folks out there in that we are a nonprofit. So we offer sliding scale pricing. So if we have a big tech giant, we're going to charge them full price. And that helps us subsidize the cost of smaller businesses, nonprofits, academic institutions, and so on. And we also work with individuals. So we do a little bit of everything. And before we move forward, sorry, I did want to say one thing, which is we are in the Bay Area, which is unceded ancestral homeland that belongs to the Rametush and Muwekma Ohlone people, some of whom speak the language Chechenyo. So folks out there interested in getting started on this path to inclusion, I really encourage you to find out whose land you're on. And if you're in the Bay Area, learn a little bit more about the Ohlone Nation from me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that call to action right there. There is something so powerful about really understanding the history of where we have been. And that makes such a big impact on where we go in the future. Yeah, for sure. And so I love what you're doing so much for a multitude of reasons one of the things, though, of course, those of you that follow me, you know I'm a career transition and leadership coach, and a lot of people are out there with jobs that they really don't like. They feel unheard, unseen. They really don't feel well when they have to get up on Monday mornings to go to work because they feel marginalized, left out. And just like nobody's supporting them or has their back. And one of the big be the wolf qualities is to learn how to advocate for yourself and speak up mm. for yourself. And I got to tell you, if you've had some negative experiences in your life, that is not always the easiest thing. And so I think it's important for, of course, you as individuals to learn how to do that. And also as companies creating safe spaces for people to be able to do that is incredibly important. And there are companies that are doing that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in business. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I think what you said is um, right on point. It's, you know, there's no perfect workplace, right? Like every, just like there's no perfect person. Everybody has some space to grow. Everybody has some room to shift and life is always changing. I mean, that's the beauty of life, right? Things are changing, interests change. You get skilled at one thing. You want to try a different career. You know, your company, your, your organization evolves. And having that safer space, whether it's in an organization to bring up issues, to ask for changes or it's within yourself to be like, hey, you know, it's okay. I'm, I'm having a hard time right now. And I can do things to change that, but I can also have some empathy for myself. I think that's a really good thing that you pointed out that, that we, we strive to help people do. Yeah. Awesome. So now this was not always your path. You, well, you've had quite a story. You've gone, you've been all over the world. <laughs> You have had quite a few different experiences ranging from one side of the pendulum to the other side of the pendulum as far as inclusion, belonging, all of that. So what would you say that your path started off 
feeling included or feeling excluded? Which, where did it start Hmm. for you? That's a great question. So folks that have just now met me, like in these last few minutes. So I am born, I'm from Bogota, Colombia. I am Latinx, I'm white presenting. I have a mixed indigenous, West African and European heritage. And I grew up in, you know, Colombia, Nigeria, France, Venezuela, and Texas, which is a country. (laughs) And in all of these process, in all of these different places as I was growing up, I actually felt really included because I was really out there and I wanted to meet everybody. And I liked learning about new cultures, new languages. Like that was really fun. I saw myself as a citizen of the world and I saw everybody as citizens therein. Like we're all people, you know, at the, at the core. Of course, this is a very naive view. My parents definitely grew up at a time where kindness was the path to go when it came to race or gender or any of those things. But what I learned growing up in these different places and then suddenly, you know, getting the culture shock of living in the United States and really opening my eyes to all of these systems of oppression, which we've now been talking, I think, in the broader public, I suddenly felt excluded. And this really started in middle school. I'd gone from being really excited. I just lived in, um, I just lived in Venezuela and I moved back to Colombia and I went to middle school and I was bullied. I was excluded. I was the one that nobody wanted to hang out with. I was told all sorts of awful things about my body, my face, how I spoke. Everything was up for criticism. And that was like the moment where I really like, oh, (laughs) what is going on? I thought everybody was a citizen of the world and we were all aiming for the same thing, which is just to be children and have fun. And that was actually a trend that I felt in other spaces too. Once I moved, I moved back to Venezuela and I became the popular one, but I still saw the dynamics of inclusion, exclusion. And when I moved to the States, racism and xenophobia were just so much more prevalent. And, you know, I lived with misogyny for so much in my life that I hadn't even really noticed it either. So it was really in college that I started like waking up to it and really noticing. And as you pointed out, it was really like points where my view of like, oh, we're all included. We can all really, you know, accept each other. But I was like, oh, wait, why? (laughs) Why am I being excluded? Why is this person being excluded? Why do we have to walk on the other side of the street from a black person walking? Like, we're just the same people. Like, I don't understand why is my neighbor asking whether or not I belong in the car in my own neighborhood? Why, Why are all these things happening? It was really sort of learning that these, you know, not only is the world not a nice rosy view, but there is, you know, these, now that I, now I understand them as systems of oppression, right? There's white supremacy, misogyny, they're all, you know, really intertwined and they come with this history, colonialism, slavery, like all of those pieces are intertwined. And the product is what we have now, where we don't feel safe at work or were passed over by the high school counselor. That's one thing that happened to me, passed over by the high school counselor to go to advanced placement courses, not recommended, not offered a recommendation letter by your college professor to go to a graduate school. 
passed over by your graduate advisor to go to a conference because they only invited men, but you didn't notice, right? Like (laughs) all of these different pieces. And, you know, and I recognize like my experience, even though I struggled and I met all this resistance, I had privilege even in that time where I'd be more readily accepted. But yeah, it started off with inclusion, but then it like really hit exclusion. Boom, 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 boom at lots of different stages. It's really interesting because I think about, and, and I know this from my own experience, when you spoke about not understanding why some people were included, some people were not. I know from my own experience, when I was little, I had walked, evidently, I walked into a door frame and I got a black eye. Oh my gosh. And at the time, this was you know, I was three years old, 1976, oh. myself. so things were a little bit different than they are now, but still we've got the same issues. And I remember my babysitter was named Maria and she was of Latin descent. And my mom was really worried that leaving me with her with a black eye would cause her to get some backlash. That people would say, oh, what is this Latin woman doing to this poor little white child? And Mm -hmm. I remember feeling so confused. I Mm -hmm. didn't understand. I loved her as much as my mom. So Mm -hmm. it didn't make sense to me. And she tried to explain as best as you could to a three-year-old why some people would exclude or push away or treat other people different based on the color of their skin. But as a child, my belief is that we do not, that that behavior does not seem natural and it does not seem normal. We Mm -hmm. learn it, we pick it up from other Mm -hmm. people. And I think that the baseline of who we are, who we are born as, really wants to include everybody. It's not really until there becomes fear that we start excluding other people. And I know from unwinding people's unconscious mind that when we're pushing people away, the base of that is almost always fear. Yes, Yes. And you can really hear that in rhetoric from people that are trying to exclude. In academia, it's like, well, we just want the best and the brightest. We just want people who will actually work hard. But what are they using to see if people are working hard? They're using, they're using standardized tests, which in order to test well, you probably went to a prep course that cost money. And then you needed to test multiple times. If you are needed to um, have had opportunities to do summer internships, right? That's like used as a metric for how passionate you are about the field. But how are you going to have those opportunities? You have to be connected, right? To the right networks, or you have to live in cities where that's really like prevalent and available and you really hear about it. And you have to have the time and the money in order to be able to afford you know, not earning income in order to go to these summer programs or, you know, things like that. And 
even in how you write applications for things like a PhD program, you have to know what it is they're looking for. You can't just answer the questions. There is a specific format, there's specific kind of language. They're looking for something that they already know what it is, but you don't unless you have parents that were in PhD programs. You have a mentor that will look over your application. You have all sorts of guidance and connections, even knowing where to go for graduate school, what kind of jobs you could get afterwards, just understanding even that whole world. There is no structure to understand that in colleges or much less in high schools. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fear building. And, you know, it's the same for rhetoric around immigration, like, oh, they'll take your jobs. They're going to, they're going to be really violent. They're going to, you know, bring down the value of the neighborhood. It's, a, it's just such bullshit. And it comes, it comes from that, that adding fear. Well, they, they won't understand. I don't understand them. They don't understand me. Like, we can't possibly have anything in common. And it's building fear and that building fear in others, we often end up internalizing it ourselves. So the same systems of oppression that keep women down, for example, and out of high paying jobs and out of getting paid their work, their, their experience, their knowledge, that all can become internalized. And so we women can be biased even against other women because we just take this on, right? This idea that, well, well, maybe we need to prove ourselves more. Maybe we don't quite belong here yet. Maybe we just need to be more confident, but it's not an us problem, right? It's like a, a community. It's a systems problem. Yeah. Well, and it's when I think about being the wolf and being who you're born to be, one of the biggest things is that you really learn how to step through every single obstacle so that you can be the best you and do what you're supposed to do and bring to the world what you're meant to bring to the world. And a lot of people, the most powerful wolves, I think, have come from these backgrounds where they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the knowledge, they weren't paved uh, the way. They have gone against the grain. They have figured it out when all the odds were stacked against them. And, and it takes a certain kind of tenacity and resilience to continue to do that over and over and over again. And I know that you have that in spades. I think about your experiences. Talk to us a little bit about college <laughs> and the experiences that you had with certain professors, certain situations where you had to fight so hard to actually achieve the things that you were trying to achieve. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share that. So my path to diversity and inclusion, actually, I never started there. So I, from when I was really little, I was interested in science. 
And when I was in high school, I was a little unsure. I was like, what do I want to do science? Do I want to do art? Do I want to do music? Do I want to do, I wasn't quite sure. So I started in an undecided major and I had a really great genetics professor whom I totally loved. And he, you know, he didn't know, but he started me on the path to going back into being a scientist. And so I ended up pursuing a degree in genetics with a biochemistry double. And actually getting into that career path wasn't that bad once I was in college. It was in high school where like a college counselor, my um, high school counselor was supposed to set me up with like, okay, you're transferring from the school. You need AP courses if you want to go to college. They never mentioned college. They never mentioned advanced placement courses. They never mentioned any of that. Um, And I didn't know to advocate for that until I realized that my classmates and I were both earning the same grades, but they had higher GPAs than I did. I was like, okay, this is fucked up. And so (laughs) then I asked for, okay, I want advanced placement. I was like, okay, sure, whatever. You know, they didn't care. This was in Texas. So all Latinx folks, like, you know, whatever in high school. And in college, I went to college, I... Um, getting So getting into that career for science, it was really taking opportunities. So I did have a few professors that like believed in me and were like, hey, you want to go do a summer internship in Japan? Let me set you up. I have a friend and that pr- professor in Japan being like, hey, you're really good at science. Are you going to do a PhD? And I was like, oh, sure. I don't know. Like, Can I do that? Let me stop, <laughs> you. Yeah, let me stop you right here for a second because... <laughs> Sometimes when we've got all these ads against us or these odds stacked against us, we have that one person that believes in you, that one person that says, hey, I think you can do this or I do and I think it's amazing. Can you share, because I know in my own journey that has been incredibly powerful and I'm sure many people Mm -hmm. out there can relate. What did it mean for you when you had those professors that were advocating for you and believing in you? It changed my life. It changed my life because I, you know, I mentioned being bullied in middle school and I think that was the start of me taking in oppressive shit, (laughs) just taking an oppressive crap from people and internalizing all that negative dialogue that either other people fed or I fed myself. So having that professor say, hey, I hear that you want to do an internship. Would you like to go to this place in Japan? And this professor being like, hey, you're doing a good job. Are you going to pursue a PhD? I was like, I didn't know. I, I didn't know to believe in myself as that, as the future for me. And it was really powerful to have somebody that could see my passion, my interest and my work and was like, Hey, like, let's, you should, you could do this. And that was enough. Like that one conversation in a whole nother country was enough. He told me about, um, great places to go get a PhD in the US. I didn't know about any of them because nobody had ever talked to me about them. And my, my parents both actually are, are first generation, I think, in their families that got to college in Colombia. 
So they didn't have any context either. <laughs> so here I was saying, okay, this is something I want to do when I come back. And it was, it was extremely powerful. And it was in that process of applying to graduate school and trying to navigate the space. Like I was saying, there's all this context and knowledge that I didn't have and I didn't know I had to have if I wasn't so, you know, yeah, I'm so grateful that I did have a, a few mentors that were willing to to help me and ask me like, do you do you need a letter of recommendation? I was like, oh yes, I think I do. do. You know, would you like me to look over your application? Like, oh yeah, okay. I didn't know to ask that. That was really right. powerful. But I also had a professor who was that professor whose first genetics class I ever took that I absolutely adored. I was like, hey, I'd like to apply to go to graduate school at UC San Francisco. And he's like, oh, you'll never make it in. Mm. And I just remember my heart dropping and like all the insecurities that I hadn't been feeling yet about going into graduate school, just resurging up in me and be like, well, do I really deserve to go? Am I going to be smart enough? Like, am I going to be good enough? And that stuck with me. When yeah. I did get into graduate school at UC San Francisco. Yes. So I, w- I want to take one <laughs> moment here because I think it's really important for people to understand when somebody says something like you'll never get in or maybe you should have a backup plan or I don't think you should do that. What people don't understand is they're not talking about you. They're projecting their own limitations, their own fears, their own stuff onto you. It is nothing to do with you. Of course, that's another thing we are not taught. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. when people say, hey, I don't think you should do that. Like of your mom's like, I don't know, that you've got to pick a safe career. They're talking about their own fears and their own limitations and the way they've lived their own life. It is not about you. Mm-hmm. So now you got in though, you, I you did. still, you, you did the be the wolf thing and you're like, I'm going to apply anyway. And <laughs> what was, what was that like? The application process? Did you expect to get in? Did you, how, how was that for you? I had a lot of, I had my top, my top two schools were UC San Francisco and UC Berkeley and then, or no, and UCLA. So like these, the UC schools, which everybody was like, oh, these are the best to get in for molecular biology and genetics. I was really interested in that. And, and then I had several B plan schools that were like really solid. And then I even had like D plan schools. I was like very likely to get in because they were also in Texas and they like prioritize, you know, people coming from public schools in Texas. And I got so many, uh, I I got waitlisted for Stanford and Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) I got waitlisted for Stanford, but I got into every single other place. And it was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know. Like, that's, that's cool. That's great. I remember the interview process actually for both Stanford and UCSF at Stanford. I stick my tongue out at Stanford because a professor literally sat there with my resume and was like, quizzing me about my own resume. I'm like, is this? I am so confused. (laughs) And then at UCSF, I remember sitting across from a professor 
who was from Argentina. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is like me. Like, this is somebody from Latin America who's a professor. That's so cool. And he asked me like a science question about like viruses for plants. I'd only ever studied like viruses and bacteria in like a different system. I mean, you don't have to be a nerd to know, but it's like, say you're like a patissier and somebody's asking you about appetizers for, you know, foie gras. You're like, I don't, oh, that's not my, that's not my, my forte. Right. Why are you asking me this? I was like, I don't really know. And he's like, no, no, just, just try. And so I was like, so I spitballed something and he's like, oh yeah, that's really good. <laughs> just, and then we just went on and had a conversation and that was really fun. But actually joining the graduate program, you know, that um, those negative voices that I just kept feeding were getting worse and worse. And I just had really, really strong imposter syndrome where I was like, oh gosh, I really got to prove myself here. I really got to show everybody that I, I can do this, that I earned my spot, that I was really, and I was just really pushing myself. I really was trying to be a perfect ideal that nobody told me I had to live up to, but I just felt all this pressure internally and all this pressure to achieve and succeed. I and, think, yeah. yeah. I think that's so common when you feel like you don't belong or you feel like you've been excluded a lot in your life that, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. I didn't, I didn't have the way paved for me. What, what do I do? Am I doing this right? Am I like, uh, 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 because when you've been excluded so often, it's like you try to, maybe you try to be nice to the not popular kid. And then the popular kids are like, why are you being nice to him or her? And you, you get the messaging around your life that what you're doing is not right. And mm -hmm. of course, somewhere inside, that's your choice to believe that. Mm -hmm. But when we're young and we're not surrounded by models, of other people doing the thing that maybe we're trying to figure out, it's really hard to figure out if I'm, I'm doing, am I doing it right? Is this okay? And so I think that's definitely something that a lot of people who have struggled with inclusion and exclusion have really gotten to experience in their lives. Absolutely. And being the only one also is a big deal. I wasn't the only Latinx person, but there were, like, I could count on my hand the number of women in my program that encompassed four different, like, departments. That was, <laughs> I could count on my hand. And the number of women of color. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and me being white presenting, I knew like, okay, well, I guess, but you know, just even looking at my peers, like there weren't that many. And even if you had met me when I started graduate school and when I ended graduate school, like the way I dressed was completely different because I started getting comments about my body. Instead of asking me about my science, I got comments about, oh, what earrings I had or what skirt I had on or like different things like that. I was like, oh gosh, that's uncomfortable from my professor, <laughs> from my boss, or from my like postdocs that were supposed to mentor me. And it was then that as I was like fighting super, super hard, I realized I was depressed. I had gotten an award, a very prestigious award to fund my work to do science. 
and everybody was congratulating me. Hey, we saw the list, you know, good job, whatever. And I couldn't be happy. Like in my head, I heard, oh, you should have gotten it earlier. I think you could have applied when you were in college, but you didn't. So you, you should have gotten it earlier. And I realized, okay, something was wrong. And it was just, that was like the start of me. I think one of the many pivotal points for me in becoming my own wolf, if you will, of saying, I need support. Like, I can't just do this alone. I need, and so I got therapy. And I started talking to my classmates about my experiences. And I had another friend, she's, and she's a white woman. And she was like, I also feel imposter syndrome. And when I saw you present your, your research, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so far behind. And I was like, I didn't know that you felt that way. And we started opening up these conversations and I joined a minority graduate student organization. And we were all like, yeah, this, nobody really has an understanding of diversity and we feel excluded all the time. Like, can we just create like a baseline? And that was like my first formal work in diversity, equity, inclusion, where we were advocating for each other as a community and asking our faculty, asking our fellow students to take up this work with us and engage in that dialogue in a way that was like exciting and empowering and like interesting as opposed to humdrum and, oh, you have to feel awful. And, um, and it was a really big change to see like, I needed support and it's okay to ask for support and starting to recognize people that I saw, like one of my classmates who I totally love, um, she just always seemed really composed and super smart and very sure of herself. I learned later on, both her parents are professors. So like she knew what to expect in academia. She knew, she knew how it works and she's no longer in academia. She went on to do consulting, science consulting, but still consulting because it it just wasn't, it wasn't about the science. It was about who's top dog and can you elbow other people out of the way, (laughs) which is totally not part of my values. And I think when you were talking about like pivotal points or things where I'm like, oh, I got to advocate for myself. I can't just like let this happen. That point was actually my body telling me I'm tapped out. I'd gotten to a point where I was having panic attacks daily. Like when you talked about in the beginning, like people in jobs so they can't get up in the morning on Monday. Right. I was like struggling, pushing myself to go into the weekend to do an experiment. I just... It was just so painful and I, I love the science, but I hated the workplace. I just, it was just really awful and grating. And I realized that I was going to get crushed if I didn't bring that support network in and like advocate for myself and be like, you know what, this isn't working and this isn't right. I had an emotionally abusive professor who would kick things around, like throw keyboards in his office, yell at people in public. And I am a person that wears their heart on their sleeves. And I'm sure you could see like my anger at his behavior. And it was so controlling. And I just, gosh, I just need to make it through to get my PhD. And I had to make that decision. Like, do I leave? and feel okay with saving myself from this awful place? Or do I stay and try to get that PhD? 
And I, I was, it was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. What? I'm like, so I'll, 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 let's make a little more attention for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's one of the things that is so powerful. And this is a be the wolf quality. You not only started advocating for yourself, but you started to reach out for support and you started having these conversations that were not necessarily okay conversations to have because most of us have been brought up to hold it all inside, to keep it inside and all this crazy stuff and turmoil that we feel that we're the only ones that feel that. I'm actually speaking next month at an event with Les Brown and the NAMI organization about it's called You Are Not Alone. And it's about mental health stuff because so much of these things that we feel are we hold them inside and we feel like we're all alone. So you're advocating for yourself and having these conversations, which of course like leads us towards where you end up was a really pivotal in being the wolf and also allowing you to just navigate on any level with any kind of good feeling. Does that sound correct for you? Yeah, I, I love that you picked up the, the conversations bit because when you're being in yourself and you're being honest about your experience and you're talking about that. It wasn't just with the minority graduate organization. I also, I was in everything. I was in women in life sciences. I was running that. I was, you know, in the graduate student organization. And as I was being vocal and advocating, not just for myself, but for others, people started coming to me with their stories. Like they wanted to tell me about their professor who questioned their commitment to science when they got pregnant. People came to me with professor threatened to fire me and leave me without a visa. I have a family here if I don't come in and do experiments when he wants me to. Like wow. it's just the kind of level of awfulness that you think is just in the movies. It happens and it's like still happening right now. But me being out there and talking about it had other was able to validate other people and their experience. Yeah. And I think through that process, I was able to advocate for for graduating. And I was, I, you know, I talked to all the stakeholders. I made a deal <laughs> with my department head. And I really put everything that I had out there to make it work. And while I did get my PhD, my body, I was still suppressing so much, even though I was talking with people, I had therapy, I was leaning heavily on my partner and my family. It all came like crashing upon me where I really got a wake up call that being in a place like academia, where it was so cutthroat, where it was so like feeling like every, every single thing, every moment was a criticism you couldn't talk about a result without getting criticism because that was how the culture worked and it was too much. And I had to take some time to really explore and heal from what ended up being really full blown anxiety attacks where I was disconnected from reality. I couldn't, there was a time where I wasn't even able to speak. 
So I had to like rebuild myself, heal from these traumas of toxic workplaces that were connected to my past experiences of being bullied and feeling excluded, like all of those things I had to start working on. And I had to start thinking like, well, I still love science, but what do I want? But what do I want? As many of the folks that come to you, I was in a space where I was like, I don't know what I want. I don't, I'm not sure, you know, I had this thing that I was really passionate about. I'm still grieving over the stream I had. And through this process of self-exploration and healing, I came up on the other side, really wanting to still change those environments still changed what was going on because no one should have to put up with all of this to live our dreams, to live our truth. And that's basically what led me to the unconscious bias project. We we were wanting to share with people like, look, these little things that feel like they're nothing that you gaslight yourself over. Gaslighting wasn't a term back then that we gaslight ourselves over those are real products of systems of oppression. And sometimes we don't even know when they're happening. Sometimes we don't even know when we are doing it ourselves. So how do we gain awareness? And then eventually was born, how do we have tools to counter this? And that's where we built Unconscious Bias Project. Yes. (laughs) And one of the things too, that I notice about people who are, living these really powerful lives and doing powerful things in the world is sometimes our purpose is born from these wounds that we experience. And sometimes those not so great experiences lead us to what we're really truly meant to do and to figure out how to own our own power with empathy we can be powerful and empathetic at the same time. It's not a might over, what is it? Might is right. I can't even remember what the saying is, but we don't have to push people to have power. We can have this empathetic flow and be powerful Mm -hmm. and create beautiful things that ripple out into the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I tell When I tell people my fuller story, as they're doing now, all of these experiences, I was bullied, I experienced sexual violence, I was in toxic workplaces, I saw other people get close to or engage in self-harm because they were just feeling so much pain. And these are all products of choices other people made around them and choices that through through the course of your life, you you feel like you have no agency. And what I tell folks is, you know, the things that I learned from these painful experiences is that inclusion is a choice, right? Like people chose to engage in colonialism, engage in slavery, even now engage in police brutality, like engage in inequitable systems of so-called justice. Um, People are choosing those things. They've chosen it in the past. They're choosing it now. And it is actually our power, our ability to choose to include. And everybody has that power. And when we make that concerted effort as a community, that's when we're starting to make that local change, institutional change. And we can organize and create even greater change that can last. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's always a friend of mine and I, we were having a conversation once on how do you cure racism, right? It's a, it's a conversation that a million people have had. And yeah. she was through policy. We have to do it through policy. And I was like, through healing. You've got to do it through <laughs> healing. But it's really like policy helps change the, like, the top structure and the healing helps change sort of the bottom structure. And where we come in, if we've got, if we're coming at it from so many different angles, then we are actually changing things little mm -hmm. by little. It's not instant, y'all. <laughs> but we've got people like me, we've got people like you, we've got people like her all working towards the same sort of end results. But we've got these problems are so big, we do need to come at it from so many angles. So tell us, tell us <laughs> about all the things, how people can follow the Unbiased Project and the unconscious, how they can get involved with and reach you, all the things. Tell us all the things. Yes. Well, this is a perfect time for me to say that for all the Be The Wolf listeners out there and clients, go ahead and mention Be The Wolf podcast when you reach out to book a call with us. You'll get a 5% discount on any workshop or consultation service. You can either go to uvproject.org or shoot me an email, Lynette, at uvproject.org to get started on becoming an empowered leader on making that change that you really want to see. To take a little moment here, I do want to say that we are live streaming right now, right after we've heard awful news about Tyree Nichols. And for folks out there who want to make a difference, want to do something about it, you can support Tyree Nichols' family at their GoFundMe. And it's GoFundMe.com slash F slash Tyree. That's T-Y-R-E dash Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S. Yeah. So yes. that's what we've got going on. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead right now, unless you're driving and that's something you want to support, go ahead and open your browser now and type it in gofundme.com slash F slash Tyree, T-Y-R-E dash Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S and click on it, donate, make an impact. And for those of you who are looking to get out of those toxic workplaces, you know it's time to switch careers. And you know, because I show you time and time again on this podcast, that there are employers that are doing good things and that are actually creating the work environments that you want to work in because obviously you wouldn't be in business <laughs> if that was the case, if that wasn't the case. So they're out there. If you're willing to do the work to actually break through your own fears so that you can actually make your life more fulfilled by having a career that you love, I have a free gift out there for you. You can just go to elevatefreegift.com. It's the five secrets you need to know to switch to a great career. And again, open up your browser, type it in, elevatefreegift.com. Lynette, I am so grateful for the work that you're doing in this world. And tell me, 
before we sign off, <laughs> there was something that you would tell your past self or the listeners here today or just something you would like to leave us all with. What would you say to your past self? I would reach out to little Lynette and I would think I was 10 before I started hitting that bullying and the exclusion pieces. And I want to tell everybody out there that you are enough. You are beautiful. You are smart. You are funny and unique. And that uniqueness is something that's special only to you. <laughs> Keep it safe and know that while there might be others that will try to take you or your friends down, you only need to keep believing and grab a hold of the others that see that inside you. Because if you trust who you are now and you keep that with you, just know that you will do the right thing when difficulty comes. And I love you. <laughs> Super powerful and so true, right? Each one of us has our unique gifts to bring to the world. And when we break through all the obstacles and the things that are in our way so that we can really be the wolf and be who we were born to be, we will change the ecosystem of this world in a powerful and positive way. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing yourself with us today. And for those of you listening, you are enough. Keep reminding you. yourself of that. And we will see you next time on Be The Wolf. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.